This is episode 114 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The WWE and Sports During a Pandemic. This episode is part of our near daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm really thrilled to welcome a new guest to the show. Andrew Pridgen is with us. And I actually met Andrew uh, online, so to speak. I was following his writing back, I think, in 2014 when he wrote this hilarious article called Seven Reasons Not to Say F It All and Leave Your Job to Go Move to a Mountain Town or something like that. I'm, I'm uh, butchering the title. But Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. No, I've been looking forward to our conversation. We're going to talk about WWE today, so worldwide wrestling entertainment. I think that's mm-hmm. what it's called now. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we start, Andrew, so you're a journalist working kind of in the area of contracts and sports. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I like many journalists. Most journalists, I started out as a newspaper journalist early in my career, back when a lot of newsrooms were much bigger than they are now much more robust. So I did what most beginning journalists do at the time. And that was, uh, I covered, uh, you start kind of on the cops and courts beat. Mm. So kind of a night beat and you're young and don't, or at least I didn't have many responsibilities. So I was able to do police logs, police blotter, I guess, and things of that nature and really learn how a newsroom worked and how to kind of come up. And as you as you go and as you grow, you you sort of move on to a regular beat. I did school boards for a while, city councils after that, and features writing, and then um, moved to an editor's chair eventually, and made some made some good things happen and some mistakes. But unfortunately, I was pretty much I think like everyone else, or a lot of people in my generation, uh, spit out of newspapers around the time of the our last recession mm-hmm. um, in '08, and have done blogs and written novellas and written for other folks, written for myself. I have a novel coming out, blah, blah, blah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I was following you on Death of the Press Box. That's right. Uh, Yeah. And does that still exist? Are you still writing for that? No, it's not not up right now. That was actually a venture between myself and another writer called Kyle Megan. And he and I have been good friends and co-workers. I've been his editor. He's been my editor. Uh, we've worked in, even in a corporate setting together for many years. And he and I uh, just kind of got busy with other work and life stuff and uh, shut it down about a year ago. But I'm actually, or we're actually getting an archive of it um, up and running. Oh, yay. Because we have some more time right now. And <laughs> uh, and we'll probably be adding to it a little bit in the future. I don't know if it's going to carry the same URL. We we're both kind of kicking around ideas, but there'll be there'll be some next iteration of it, hopefully in the next three or four months. 
Oh, that's that's great news. I, I really enjoyed it. And so what's happening now? How has the shutdown affected you now? Oh, mightily, I guess. Mm. Like everyone else, I was just talking with a friend yesterday who I ran into. I was uh, going to the park and playing tennis with my son, who's five oh. and <laughs> needs needs to be outside, needs stuff to do. Unfortunately, we live in a relatively um, unpopulated area and in, in sort of the central California coast and, hmm. you know, still have good access to outdoors, uh, stuff, but I ran into a friend and he made a, a good comment. I thought, or, or at least at the time it struck me. And he said, it's, it's weird seeing people because everyone sort of feels like they're going through this thing on their own. And then you see someone and, and you realize, oh, they kind of look like crap too. And, <laughs> and, and are going through it too. So I, I, I guess that's an obvious thing, but it, it just really, we, we had a, a beat, I think, between us where we both realized that life is, is, is trying to make its way. Um, it's just, it's just different, but on the writing side, I, I have like many experienced sort of a slowdown in freelance, uh, work, freelance contracts. And I guess the good news is you, you sort of, if you can mentally get there, you're able to work on some bigger projects, which I'm trying to do. Yeah. But also it's it's tough. I've had a lot of difficult conversations with a lot of people who I consider kind of my idols in the business. And this this really seems like the the end for a lot of people as as far as this career trajectory goes. And I was talking to another journalist friend of mine. Uh, I even have pointed this out in tweets and stuff, but I feel like there's tens of thousands of us out there who've been trained our whole careers to step in and, and help out. I think, I think community journalism, especially is a service and an, and an essential service. And, and we're sitting here on the sidelines working gig jobs or, you know, just trying to string together a living and trying not to go crazy. And, and we should be out there reporting on, on what's going on at hospitals, what's going on with city councils, what's going on with state governments, what's, what's going on, you know, all the way up to the federal government level and, and what's actually happening in our communities. And, and we don't have, uh, the LA times had a good story. I think it ran on Friday about the number of newspapers that are closing just in this last month. Oh, really? Oh boy. Well, that's, I've been bracing for that. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, it's like everything else. You can't go down that, that rabbit hole, but to see the staffs and, and the papers themselves, you know, go through this is, is just heart wrenching. It's a really weird time for sure. Mm-hmm. And so to bring us back to the world of sports, I hope I, I don't <laughs> sound like, uh, I don't know what, like it's all about baseball, but I'm a big baseball fan and I was just shocked. I mean, I remember exactly where I was standing when I learned it, that they canceled opening day mm-hmm. and, was, and looking back, you know, it's like, well, yes, Jeff, obviously they were going to do that. So can, can can you bring us up to speed about where we're at with sports right now in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I think everyone knows sports are not happening right now. I think I think the Michael Jordan documentary comes out on ESPN tonight, and I haven't seen quite you know fervor like this for something sports related in quite some time. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> right. Maybe I'll even watch see, it. Yeah, people <laughs> want to play baseball for a while. <laughs> exactly. Um, I think baseball though is a good you know, sort of bellwether for what's happening. It, it, it is shut down. I, I don't think it's going to come back this season. Oh, wow. You know, players made the agreement to, if the season was canceled to only take 4% of their contracts, which. Yikes. 
wasn't I don't think I don't know where the the players union was on that but it's uh I I really feel for these guys at this point I mean if you look at it too it, it it's kind of a harbinger of worse news because these guys especially going into contract years their last body of work that they'll be able to point to in 2021 is what they did in 2019 of course and and they'll all be two years older and you know they're still having to stay in shape and and game ready Mm-hmm. Um, so it is still a full-time job and, and obviously they're like us, they're having to sit at home and, and worry about their partners or their spouses or their significant others and their kids and, and trying to balance that with staying in peak, peak physical condition. Right. And mm-hmm. so I'm afraid that if, and when they do return, uh, to the game, let's say in a next season or even the season after, you know, that this, this time off will be leveraged against them. Right. And so I, I think obviously, you know, one of the things that has come out of this is the MLB is reporting all these feel good stories about, about players who are, you know, donating time and obviously financial resource to, to local food banks and local charities. And that's great. But I always read these stories and wonder where the ownership's at. Uh Right. right. I mean, these, these, these guys, these guys have a, a very limited window. Usually it's three years or less to make the amount of money they need to, to maybe survive for a whole lifetime, including medical bills and, right. And they're giving back to the communities, which is wonderful. And they're being, you know, rolled out by the league as, as, as these heroes, which they are, but I, I'm just wondering what's happening to all these billion dollar corporations that are employing them and why not, why they're not stepping in. So. Yeah. So I, I think that brings us right around to wrestling here where we (laughs) we can talk about ownership. Sure. So I really love the TV series Glow. I don't know if you uh, followed mm-hmm. that at all about uh, women wrestling. And then also a French movie uh, that in French, Les Reines du Ring, uh, I thought it was called Queens of the Ring, but I guess in English they called it uh, Wrestling Ladies or something like yeah. that. Anyway, it's, it's super <laughs> yeah. funny and I really enjoyed it. But I don't know very much at all about Worldwide Wrestling Entertainment. So can you give us some background on that organization? Sure, yeah. I think Glow has actually brought a lot of people, uh, not maybe not into the sport directly, but given people a lot better understanding. I think the showrunners of that show, Carly Manchin, Liz uh, Flayhive, are, are mostly um, to be credited for that. Mm. Uh, you know, I think the plumb line through their project or through all three seasons, I think they were set up to to shoot their fourth and final season. And then this, this thing happened that we're going through, but they wanted, they wanted the, the sport to be thought of as legitimate. Um, they wanted to get rid of the stigma that surrounded wrestling and, and, and women, especially in, in wrestling. And, and, you know, actors and showrunners do do good press around their shows and they definitely do a good job talking about um, the actors that is talking about the physicality of the sport and how it can't be faked. But, you know, it, when you do talk about uh, real professional wrestling uh, in that context, I think it, it gives it gives people who maybe don't have a lot of background in the sport a little bit of an idea of the training and the hours and the dedication it, it puts in. And, the, and these people are athletes and entertainers, just like, I guess, you know, maybe they were the leading edge. Maybe they were the first, you know, athletes that were also asked to be entertainers because that's sort of what we're asking of our people to do now anyway. In the, I think in the 80s, when I first heard about pro wrestling, it was kind of controversial to say that it wasn't real. Like the matches mm-hmm. were quote unquote fixed or 
you know, that the people were, they'd swing at each other, but kind of miss. But if I recall correctly, at that point, it was still kind of controversial. Like people would, like it, it would cause an <laughs> argument, right? Like some people are like, no. <laughs> and it was, I, I, my guess is that's kind of when things were getting started with these like crazy characters and just wild hair and just, you know, nutty stuff happening. So apparently at some point, according to Wikipedia, McMahon, the um, Vince McMahon, who's the owner mm -hmm. of WWE, at some point publicly said, yes, it's entertainment. It's not sports. And I guess by doing that, that allowed him to avoid paying some taxes, which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, but do you think there are fans who still believe that, that, it's, that it's real, that they're really fighting? Yeah, I, you know, fans are, and I'll include myself and a, a fan, a fanatic, uh, fans are crazy, right? We're all a little nuts. <laughs> and uh -huh. I, I think we believe uh, what we want to believe, you know, and I think this time of reflection has given us a minute to to figure out like what our own story is and, and, and how we perceive people. It's, you know, you look at celebrities now in their rooms and their hair is not done and their bed isn't made and it's like, yeah, wow, we're all a little feral, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but still human. Yeah, but still human. And it's easy to go to work or, or to travel for work all the time, be gone for a long time. And and I think people are, are all of a sudden discovering, you know, in kind of a little house on the prairie way, like what it's like to be on the homestead the entire mm -hmm. time and mm -hmm. be with your significant other and your children the entire time and who these people really are. And I, I think in a way you know, to try to pull that back into wrestling, you know, obviously they, they go in with a storyline and there's a narrative and there's, there's a plot and it's, and it's not as unpredictable as, you know, baseball or football or basketball or, or tennis, which is why you can't bet on wrestling. Right. I mean, I, I think uh -huh. if you want to, if you want to set a, a really hard line in the ground, you can't go up to the window and, and say, I'm going to, you know, bet Hulk Hogan in the fifth over King Kong Bundy. But you definitely, and if you listen to wrestlers tell their behind the scenes story, they, they, the really good ones are improv actors mm. with athletic ability. So they, they know, they know generally what the outcome is going to be and they, and they talk each other through it. They're talking the entire time. They're communicating the entire time. Obviously they're not mic'd up or anything, so you can't hear them. But if you watch closely, you can see their lips move and, oh, wow. and they're improvising. And that's what sport is to me, right? It's improvising. You, you have a set play and you know what you're going to do, but as soon as you dribble it past half court, they switch something up on you and you have to start creating. Um, and that's what these men and women do. I remember seeing a couple of scenes, I think, on the televisions at the gym, which is usually where I see things that are outside of my own little <laughs> bubble, right? But I saw these scenes and it was like crazy. You know, they had like the this chainsaw and this other person had like a grill. <laughs> and I was thinking, holy smokes. I mean, this looks like super dangerous, actually. Like, you know, like, yeah, things could go seriously wrong. Yeah, I think Mick Foley, who was known as Mankind, was it, this was sort of in the late 90s when wrestling, you know, wrestling sort of ebbs and flows like anything. Mm. The 80s were obviously big. And then it, I think it, it, the tide receded a little bit in the early mid 90s. And then people like, you know, Steve Austin and The Rock and Mankind. Um, and then a little bit, you know, Triple H. And then a little bit later, John Cena came along and, revitalize the sport again but mankind was just this sort of 
Joe Schmo character, he wore a flannel and jeans <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and he just kind of looked like, you know, some guy coming out of the stands and, and giving this thing a shot and had that everyman appeal. And his calling card was just to get absolutely destroyed, you know, to fall on barbed wire, to be lit on mm. fire. I think he did a 30 foot fall, Sheesh. you know, in a cage match. <laughs> <laughs> and and wow. it was it was sort of the apathesis of like do not try this at home. But then again, there's this there's this normal looking guy who could be your boss at Little Caesars Pizza, you know, doing these extraordinarily athletic maneuvers and sacrificing his body for the sport. And he's actually come out. He had a New York Times bestselling book, sort of chronicling his rise and hmm. his peak fame, and he's come out recently as as most wrestlers do at some point after their career and and criticized uh, not the sport but sort of the way that they're treated and mm. you know during and after their careers and what about announcing these matches what is kefabe <laughs> kefabe is i guess it's just a wrestling term and it it comes from it's derived from the pig latin term for fake mm. so I, I guess that would be ekfe Oh right. Oh. <laughs> and 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 really though it it is I think sort of what we were talking about this this kind of idea that even though it's fake we're using a, a real set of skills and a, a real set of plot lines to sort of guide us through this thing and uh, I guess I don't want to I don't know. I I don't want to I don't want to say it's like an ethos but it's definitely something that 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 guides uh, wrestlers through what they do essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that, that kind of, well, it's an understanding. It's an understanding. There you go. I think all performers and all athletes have colloquialisms, you know, pieces of language that they use and, and don't use in public, mm-hmm. you know, little professional winks that they give to each other. So I think there's a whole language in, inside of that, that I don't know that you don't know, but um, it's like, in, you know, if you take it back to baseball, it's it's like how a, a certain amount of cheating in the game is is expected mm-hmm. and and welcomed and part of the game. But you can't go Houston Astros cheating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there's just a line there. And if you don't understand the game or haven't played the game or haven't been around the game, you don't understand maybe where that line is to cross and say, well, yeah, well, I got I, I pretended I got hit by a pitch and that's fine. But it's not fine to bang on a trash can to let someone know what pitch is coming. So to someone who's never watched the sport, they may sound like the same thing, but they're they're miles and miles apart. Yeah, I think that's a really great parallel. Yeah, exactly. So I was really amused to read that at some point, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, which is really how I know the organization, changed its name to Worldwide <laughs> Wrestling Entertainment. Right. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I think back, well, the, the WWF, the, the one that we know now is the world wildlife Mm -hmm. uh, fun. And they were started in 1961. And then similarly, Vince McMahon's father was a wrestling promoter. And so was his grandfather, actually Mm. in the sixties and seventies, they, I, I believe called it the worldwide wrestling, uh, federation, which was WWF. This is for before the World Wide Web, so they're okay. they're onto some WWW stuff <laughs> in the sixties. Uh, I 70s. see, 
And then, and in the 80s, they shrunk that up to WWF. And then okay. I think in the early 90s, the World Wildlife Foundation said, hey, this is, this is our, this is our name. And this is also our initials, WWF. And uh, it's my understanding there was some lawsuits in the lower courts that the Wrestling Federation lost. And, but they kept using it and they lost, I think, a, a big landmark case in about 94 and they kept using it. And then finally in 2002, they switched over. And so now the WWF is associated with the, the panda bear silhouette, mm-hmm. hopefully now and forever. So. Well, that was, I had never realized that there was this confusion between those two. <laughs> it's really funny because, you know, I had a, a, a Wildlife Federation, you know, sticker on my car that has the <laughs> little bear on it. It was like, oh, that's funny. It's never cr- even crossed my mind that, <laughs> that somebody might be confused. <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a lot of people in the middle of that venue. Right. Program, yeah. I don't think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. That are two two separate camps, but yeah, I think uh, hopefully all the litigiousness is behind them. I always thought that the WWE should have parlayed not to do it, not to do a fundraiser for it or whatever, but there should have been a panda character or something. <laughs> right, but, you'd think, right? Yeah, just to, just to confuse all the tree right. huggers. Right. <laughs> so, what should we know about Vince McMahon? I'm glad you've given us a little background about him. Oh, he's like kind of a character. Yeah. Well, I think he, if you want a parallel to him, I mean, he's very much like Donald Trump. Oh, uh, in some, you know, very probably, uh, I don't know how to say this. It. Like it, it, they're, they're just, they're just the same guy. They're, they're born within a year of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both inherited fortunes, but I think kind of have this, uh, you know, American exceptionalist, uh, sort of veneer that they're they're self-made, you know. Uh-huh. Even though they're not. Vince, like I mentioned, inherited the Worldwide Wrestling Federation from his uh father who inherited it from his grandfather. So it's he's the third generation. His family's uh now taking it over. So it's a four generation company. Mm. Uh Vince was born in 45, Trump in 46. I think Vince had some some early on problems with his father. His father left when he was I think an infant or a toddler. And actually took his older brother with him and left oh. Vince with his with the mother. And so he wow. had a series of, of stepdads. And I think I, I don't know, I'm not a child psychologist, but I'm sure he had some daddy stuff going on that is still manifest today. And he reconnected with his father around twelve or thirteen. I think he went to a few big wrestling matches at Madison Square Garden, a couple other big venues on the eastern seaboard. Back then it was still regional. And went to college, graduated, did some time as a traveling salesman and decided he wanted to be in wrestling and he wanted to be a wrestler. And his father, I think, knew what the life of a wrestler was, obviously, having been around it Mm -hmm. and profited off it and said, no, you can't do that, but you can do some other stuff. And so he let him do ring announcing and, you know, let him do promotion and, you know, kind of actually uh, starting in the early 70s, started grooming uh, Vince, Vince to run the business. Hmm, interesting. And eventually it, it rolled over to him in the, uh, uh, seventies and eighties. And, and it really exploded in the, in those kind of halcyon eighties days that you mentioned at the top. Uh, but interestingly, the McMahons and Trump's are friends. I think it was WrestleMania 23 when McMahon actually fought Trump in the hair match what (laughs) yeah this was in like 07 
I think this was around the time The Apprentice. I, it actually might have been an, a, a promotion for The Apprentice. Oh, man. And if I remember correctly, Vince lost, you know, quote unquote, lost the match and then shaved his head. The, the, the loser was supposed to uh, shave their head. So obviously Trump probably wasn't going to shave his head. And, oh. you know, the families are friends. Linda... Vince's wife runs the super PAC, the America first action super PAC for Trump. Mm. And has recently, I has recently um, been tapped as one of his economic advisors uh, as has McMahon. So there's, there's a real tight connection between these two families, unfortunately. <laughs> and it, and it all comes from this sort of like PT Barnum esque you know, very American, very flim flam man, just way to like, they both have this history of kind of this barnstorming Svengali nature. And I I think that's how both of them run their empires. Wow. Amazing. America is amazing. (laughs) So let's talk about the pandemic. So what was McMahon's Mm -hmm. initial reaction to uh, stopping sports? Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't going to have it. I think because he is the sole owner mm. of, of this enterprise, obviously his, his children are, are being folded into it, but he, he wanted to stay open and he basically was able to do what baseball hasn't been able to do. Probably what football won't be able to do. And he made an agreement with the state of Florida uh, to go ahead and, you know, and Ron DeSantis, their governor, to declare them as an essential business. Okay. And that, so I just have to stop you right there. Okay. That, okay. That just, to me, that sounds like something out of idiocracy. I mean, seriously, <laughs> seriously, pro wrestling is an essential business. Uh, I, I yeah. mean, how, how did that even happen? <laughs> uh, I, Florida is your answer. I, wow. I, believe. I, I just, you know, any other state. There's a good tweet today, and I should credit it. But the person said, "If you could, <laughs> if you could sacrifice one state that's kind of effing things up during this pandemic, can you say Florida and why, or something like that?" I don't know. I just totally butchered it. But basically, uh-huh. it's like it's like Florida is going to do what Florida is going to do, and and I obviously, see. yeah, I I I do think you know Major League Baseball is is very seriously trying to get. Arizona to host all baseball games in a similar fashion. Mm. So it would be basically every team would be sequestered, cloistered, quarantined in their own little hotels. And then they would go play in these uh, basically stadiums that stay vacant most of the year, but for spring training and, you know, these kind of baseball all-star youth games that go on. And so they would basically pick one of a dozen stadiums around the Phoenix, greater Phoenix Scottsdale area. And Mm. that would be their home field. They would play in front of no one. Every player would be tested weekly, you know, and then all the associated management and and work staff, you know, I think down to basically the people who are cooking their food and slapping their bags. And it just, it just sounds like a whole logistical nightmare. And it's also something that's putting lives at literal lives at risk, right? Because what happens when a, when someone brings someone goes home for a weekend and and brings COVID back into the locker room. And then you have this sort of, you know, mini bloom of this pandemic on a team and and you take that team out for the rest of the season, you know? So that's like, 
they're trying to keep the profit engine moving, but it's like, at, w- at what's the actual human cost? I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. why I don't think baseball will come back this year because you just, if you, if you listen to any scientist or doctor or epidemiologist, they're just like, it's, this is just so full of holes. It's, you know, we can't do this, but yeah, wrestling has found a way. It seems especially strange for wrestling because they're right on top of each other, right? They're right. sweating. There's body fluids flying everywhere. <laughs> So was the idea that they would try and put protective gear on them or, or anything? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they're going back. Uh, they're going to be taping Raw on Monday, NXT, which is next on Wednesday. It's like sort of their, I guess, I guess you'd say minor leagues are the people on the come up and or on the way down and then SmackDown on Friday. I mean, they're going to do it. Um, at the performance center in Orlando. And I don't, yeah, I don't think they're going to be wearing any PPE. I, I doubt it. <laughs> so we, uh, I mean, maybe you could make it kind of funny, right? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure they'll make fun of it. And I mean, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, they'll riff on it, but at the same time, it is what you're seeing is a, is a basically a workforce that's, that's been indentured into slavery during a pandemic. So did any of the entertainers speak out after that was announced and say, Hey, I, I don't feel safe. Um, no, they, they haven't directly said that, that they feel unsafe. I think quietly, if you, if you read between the lines on, on some of their social medias, especially the the players that were let go, there was a couple dozen that were let go in this time. There, there've been some, some pretty winking. Mm you know, like this is, this is, this is not, not great. But I I think if you, if you look at the state of the American worker and how underrepresented we are by unions and how fast we can be tossed aside. And the fact that if you're a wrestling superstar, you, there's one employer for you to choose from. I see. So they do, they don't have a union or any kind no. of, no, no. And so, it's a very weird thing that happened. So he announced that the show will go on and then, (laughs) and, and so things got underway, right? Everybody started planning for all these things you're you're talking about for the coming weeks. And Mm -hmm. then weirdly, he like turned around and laid a bunch of people off. Yeah. I think it's like any sport when you take away the, the gate of your operations, that's a big chunk because that's, that's the, the ticket in the concessions, the, the merch. I mean, I don't even want to want to know how, you know, what your average spend is for a stadium full of, of wrestling fanatics, but it's gotta be up there by the time you buy the t-shirt and the doll and the, and the handcuffs and the flamethrower, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the the accoutrement that goes that goes along with it. So, you, you know, clearly, I, I think the wrestlers themselves aren't sure, you know, if the if the layoffs are permanent. But he got rid of some pretty big names, you know, and also also got rid of some pretty a lot of announcers and a lot of front office people and a lot of you know just the supporting cast of of folks that you know, make this thing happen. I think, you know, you've got, uh, Kurt Angle who started off as an Olympic wrestler and was a WWE champion. And, you know, now he does some behind the scenes work. You've got tag team champions, Carl Anderson, and Luke Gallows. You've got cruiserweight champion, Leo Rush, 24 seven champion, Drake Maverick. You've got a couple of referees that were laid off that had been with the WWE for 
for 20 plus years or seasons. Yeah. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're laying off some big name talent, but again, where do they have to go? Mm -hmm. Do you think that there, that he, that this was a preemptive move on his part to try and keep entertainers from organizing? Oh yeah, (laughs) of course. I think, (laughs) think, well, I think every, I, I have a very, I've had some corporate experience both with newspapers and with tech companies. And I, I don't really see in upper management or at the CEO level, anything that's done by them. That's not a calculated risk in order to keep people from banding together. Mm. I'm curious about organizing during a crisis like this, if that it can be effective because right now, I mean, that's the only live sports that we have. So they have a lot of visibility or do you think that it can backfire? Like, the public will see that as, as inappropriate thing to do during a crisis. Right. Uh, are you talking about wrestling or the whole world? <laughs> yeah. Just in general, like, you know, yeah. Grocery cashiers and yeah. But, but yeah. Wrestlers too. I mean, I, I think people have to always remember that they're valuable and that their skill is valuable and that 99% of us aren't, aren't paid enough for, for what we, whatever it is we have expertise in. I was talking to a friend the other day who was kind of having this conundrum. conundrum. He'd just been laid off uh, by a tech company and he's a UX writer, which means, you know, when you're looking on your phone and you're clicking through stuff, he writes those little buttons, right? Which isn't in and of itself, it doesn't sound like much, but it's obviously, you know, it's, it's millions and millions of dollars on the line if you're clicking through, right? Or not. Mm-hmm. And he's, and he's sort of like, well, I, I have a lot to say right now, especially as a tech worker, you know, and I see what's happening with Amazon workers who are trying to speak out a little bit in order to to become unionized. They're getting fired. And he says, I know what's happening with developers and designers and gig workers and, you know, all, all these people who are either getting laid off or getting paid minimal uh, for, for the services they're doing. But as soon as you go and, and you've gone on your social media or you've gone on LinkedIn and you say, hey, I'm organized, you get blackballed. Mm-hmm. And you stop getting job interviews, and so at what point is it? You know, you have to at some point, especially now, you have to wake up with your partner or looking at your children or or with whomever you're accountable to, even if it's just you, and and decide, you know, what's worth it. But I don't think, my me personally, I I don't think that this country gets up and running again, and after this season passes unless we have some kind of real committed worker organization. We just can't, we can't, we can't keep doing this because every cycle gets worse for the worker. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like we learned lessons in 2008 and now it's improved. It's just, it's just worse faster. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This situation with these wrestlers seems to really, really starkly lay out the power imbalance Mm -hmm. and the, and the lack of fairness. Right. And that's absolutely all it is. You know, you're paid, you're paid for your time in the ring and that's all. Um, Even baseball players and football players, when they go to arbitration or when they sign, you know, that first or second big contract, they're, they're paid, you know, mostly for services that have already been rendered. Right. Mm -hmm. If, if you go on and you win a, a championship and you're 24 and then you're signing a big contract when you're 28, if you're a pitcher, you've, 
you basically shown that you're a value to the league and that you could maybe bring that around again, but usually it doesn't really happen like that. So, but wrestlers don't have that option. I mean, they're paid for the paid for the here and now it's almost like uh, musicians to an extent you, you, you bring in, um, except even worse, you bring in a percentage of who came to see you that night and that's what you get. Hmm. If you had a magic wand, what changes would you make to sports contracts? Oh, I, I, I come from a family of attorneys and I always, I always feel like if, if I ever went that direction, I would just be a, a pro labor mm-hmm. in sports attorney, because, you know, I really, I really think if you look, I was writing a piece the other day that actually got, <laughs> got cut at the last minute about Clayton Kershaw's contract and how we view it. And he had a, he's a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Mm-hmm. I'm he, very familiar with him. Okay. He got a, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in San Diego. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He got a, in 2000, I guess, 19 last year, he got a three-year contract extension uh, through 2021 for, for about 93 million, about 30 million a year. And he's on the back end of his career. This, this quite possibly his last contract. And he may, he may in fact retire after the 21, 21- 21 season and you know you think well 30 million a year per year for three years at the end of my career doesn't sound so bad you know you and I think that everyone thinks that sure but again he's probably going to miss at least at least one of those seasons people come out to see him he's a known quantity the Dodgers drew 3.975 million people to their stadium last year they were going to pass 4 million this year almost certainly if you break it down, I, I think another writer and I figured out very conservatively, he probably makes his money back after three home starts for the team. Right. Just in, just in gate alone. Well, and some of, some of us go watch him so we can just hate on him. Yeah. And, so, and some people watching <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. But so, and you think, and you pile on the TV contracts on top of that and the merch and blah, blah, blah. I mean, these, these guys are, even the even the most well paid are paying for themselves almost immediately, mm-hmm. uh, and then some, you know, by just people sitting in the seats. And then, so then, if you think about okay, what's what what's the percentage now that the Dodgers are worth, you know, eleven billion dollars? What you know, what is what is paying someone like that who's who's supposedly your guy? Uh, it's it's nothing. Right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a $3 tip to your pizza. Not that you should only tip $3, but it's a, it's a small tip to your pizza delivery person. So I think in, in a perfect world at some point, there would be a, a team, a franchise owned by players. Oh, I see. And it would be, you know, it would be a profit sharing model. And then that would continue on into, you know, say, say a, a player gives you five years and you know, they become vested after three. So they get a small piece of the company. And then, you know, you put aside some of that money in order to give them whatever they want to do afterwards. Do they want to have continued education? Do they want to go back to undergrad? Do they want to go to grad school? Do they want to get an MBA mm-hmm. and work on the business side of the business? Do they want to get a CPA and become an accountant? I mean, a lot of these folks have, have very diverse <laughs> uh, talents sure. beyond the sport. If they want to learn how to play the organ, if Barry Zito wants to play the guitar during the seventh inning, give the man a guitar and pay him a living wage to do it. 
not that some of these guys need the money. I mean, some can have enough to go away and disappear, but a lot of them who, who gave a year and a half, two years and struggled for a long time in the minors or even had just, you know, a few games up, uh, have to go on and get a marketing job or have to go on and work for enterprise rent a car, what, you know, whatever. Sure. And, and a team that could employ, could use the people that have given their fans so much joy and could employ them for the rest of their careers, even, even outside of being a batting instructor or being a third base coach or becoming a man, like not everyone's on that track. Right. Right. Some people want to have normal lives and have normal nine to fives and not be traveling months a year. So I, I believe across all sports contracts could be structured like that. If we didn't have these monolithic approaches to holding service to the, the feet of our billionaire oligarchical overlords. Wow. What a, what a fascinating conception. <laughs> yeah. V- very interesting. So Andrew, um, I, I have to let you go, but before I do, I'm wondering if you would like to share with the listeners a way they can follow your work or anything you'd oh, like sure. to share with them. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, I'm at Andrew J. Pridgen on Twitter. Uh, that's a, I, I need to get it. I should have gotten a better Twitter. I didn't know anything about Twitter. It was like own eight when I joined. <laughs> so, well, at least it's your name. Yeah, I could have done like I could have done something clever. I mean, I think there was a lot available then. Anyway, it's Andrew J. Pridgen, P-R-I-D-G-E-N at Twitter. My novella is on Amazon. It's called Burgundy Upholstery Sky. Oh, yeah, I saw that on there. I that wanted was, to. That was cool. Uh, had the most forgettable name imaginable for my first, (laughs) (laughs) my first offering. I have a, I have a novel dropping, I think on June 20th, knock on wood. Oh, cool. I was reading sheets today and it sounds okay. I mean, I can read most of it and not cringe. So I think that (laughs) that's a good sign. (laughs) Is that a good sign? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah. Six months from now, I don't know how I feel about it, but anyway, so. And what's its working title? Uh, when this is over. Oh, when this is over. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was actually a book I started about two years ago and it was, it was, it was about a pandemic. And so. (laughs) No. And so. That's kind of creepy. Yeah. Well, I guess I think I'm kind of (laughs) creepy. I mean, it was about, it it was sort of, it's sort of this kind of story within a story. So one person's, kind of going through it and she's the main character and it's kind of this boring dystopia that we're all kind of living through. And then this thing kind of happens and it doesn't really change your day-to-day life until sort of the end. And then at the same time, she's a writer and editor and she's editing this guy's book and it, it kind of, it starts to go a little haywire in her personal life with this guy at the same time. So. Sounds interesting. uh, Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have to check it out. I don't know how good an elevator pitch that was, but yeah, that that's what's coming out. And then, oh, also I'd like to plug, I do a, for a quarterly, it's a women run, women only magazine. It's, it's about outdoor living. It's run by uh, a woman named Jen Gorecki. Uh, she lives in the Sierra Nevada mountains and I've known her for a long time and it's called Sisu, S-I-S-U magazine. Okay. And I run, I'm the only male voice in it. Okay. (laughs) I get to write a a back of the book column and I really enjoy doing that. I don't know how, how well I do. Um, It's kind of making fun of male writers actually. Oh, it's, it's a fun thing, but it's uh, a Sisu magazine 
they could always use the support because it's totally independently funded, no ads, mm. women only journalists, and and they have a lot of rock stars writing for them. So I'd be remiss if I didn't give them a little love. Well, I'll, ha- I'll have to check it out. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. I really appreciate it, Jennifer. I thank you for the time. And I, I hope I answered some some wrestling labor questions. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, I think so. I think it was really great. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Thank you. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.